The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 249. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to search for all those social media accounts on your own, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address there, and I'll give you a free ebook. All my social media buttons are at the top of the page as well. So you've got all that information. Great place to go to get in touch with me. You can also subscribe to my McClanahan Academy. McClanahanacademy.com. It's a great way to get more of me, and I've got seven courses available now. The newest is United States History 2-1865. is a comprehensive 54-lecture course, including 18 reading seminars. You've got reading lists. You've got lesson plans if you're using it for a homeschool curriculum, also quizzes and exams if you're using it for a homeschool curriculum. So even if you're not using it for that, it is 24 hours of lecture material on United States History 21865. It's a great course. It really is the hub of McClanahan Academy now. Every other course I've got builds on that one. So uh, going out to McClanahan Academy, get the newest course, and uh, enjoy that particular offering. Now, also, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com. You can click on the top of the page that says Support. And you can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You've also got my book plates there. If you want to get my autograph on one of my books, you can do that. That's a great way to support it. Also, click on that shop button. Get your Brian McClanahan Show logo on T-shirts, wall plates, clocks, all kinds of cool stuff, stickers. Um, So there's all kinds of ways to support the Brian McClanahan Show. And I'd like to give a shout-out to those. If you're coming over here for the first time from Tom Woods or Jonathan Harris, uh, you can uh, you know watch this show or listen to the show. Thanks for coming over and checking me out. Um, also, don't forget for that McClanahan Academy, if you're coming over from those shows, you've got a couple of coupons. Use the coupon code Woods or Harris for McClanahan Academy. Get you a discount. So if you're coming over from those shows, I appreciate you checking out the Brian McClanahan Show. Now, all that said, uh, this is going to be a different kind of, of um, podcast in that normally I have a a video version of the entire podcast, but uh, because of some technical difficulties when I recorded the podcast, the, my my video decided not to work for the entire podcast. So what I'm going to do, this is the introduction to it. I'm going to have that podcast behind it. You're just not going to have video for it. You can have audio. It'd be great audio. But if you're watching on YouTube, the video will stop after this introduction, and uh, you'll just have the audio version of it. You're listening on your on your uh, for a podcast, audio only. It won't be any different. So. Um, it's a great podcast. I'm really excited about it. There's only going to be one Brian McClanahan show this week as well. So uh, normally there's two. So next week, August 12th, I'll be back to two Brian McClanahan shows a week. But for right now, just this one. So I hope you enjoy it. And uh, we're going to be talking about Washington's farewell address. This is a listener-generated episode. Again, I love these things. Keep sending them because it gives me some ideas. Yeah, that'd be a good thing to talk about. Or I can work that in somewhere. Uh, the last uh, episode I talked about incorporation, and um, someone commented on on uh, I think it was on YouTube that these kind of informative podcasts are great. Now I do a lot of this stuff, of course, in my courses, the McClanahan Academy courses. So I understand this behind a paywall, but that does help support the show. 
Um, but I am going to do one today that I, uh, in the new course, I talk about it a little bit, and I might even include this in that class, but um, I hadn't thought about it. But it is, uh, it was a request to talk about Washington's farewell address. And this is a meaty address. It's 6,000 words. And so um, to do this justice in 30 minutes is going to be difficult. Uh, but 6, 000, a 6,000-word essay that's so full of information, and some of it, um, I think Washington's being uh, blowing a little bit of hot air considering what happened during his administration, but uh, there are some very good words of wisdom in this particular essay and uh, this address, which was published, of course, not delivered in, in person, but published in newspapers throughout the uh, United States when Washington decided to retire in 1796, uh, retire from the presidency. We do know that this address is often read by Congress, and of course, they don't follow a word of it, because when we read it and we go through it, you'll see well, you know, Congress doesn't do that. <clears throat> the general government doesn't do that. Nobody does these things. But yet they, oh, we're going to read Washington's address because farewell address because this is what we have to. Um, it's it's complete ridiculousness for the current Congress to uh, to even think that they would be following this farewell address. Now, I don't, I can't remember the last time they read it. It used to be they read it at the beginning of every session, a new session, new Congress. I don't know if they still do that or not. Uh, but regardless, it is an important document. Uh, Washington actually wanted to retire in 1792. He had James Madison draft a farewell address. He was persuaded to stay on. And therefore, when he retired in 1796, he had Hamilton rework it a little bit. And then Washington, of course, approved it and reworked it in his own way. Uh, so it is Washington's words with the influence of both James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. Now, Hamilton had become a much more important figure in the general government by 1796. In 1792, you could still make a case that uh, Madison and Jefferson had some influence over the general government. But, of course, Jefferson's gone as Secretary of State. Hamilton was also gone as Secretary of Treasury by that point, but he was still uh, Washington's right-hand man, essentially. So I want to read parts of this thing because uh, when you go through it, and I'm going to summarize sections of it, again, because of time. Uh, but there are essentially two points that Washington makes in this entire farewell address. The first is an attack on partisanship, factions, and party. Sectionalism, I should say, when I say uh, factions. Sectionalism, partisanship, and party. The other is his warning against the dangers of what he calls permanent alliances or uh, when foreign policy factionalism. And so... Uh, those are the two big themes. And if you look at the 1790s, if you look at what's happening there, that's essentially the, the basis of the two parties, that, two factions that were developing. Uh, they weren't organized parties like they are today, but you certainly had one that was galvanizing behind uh, a, a, an allegiance to the British and one to the French. This is actually uh, a, a theory of the uh, origins of the first party system was actually foreign policy that produced that, not domestic policy. But then, of course, you did have the growth of sectionalism and factions behind, uh, you know, opposite behind opposition to Alexander Hamilton's uh, financial schemes or in support of them. Um, and so Washington is is very cognizant of that, and Washington himself was engaged in these things, more of a disinterested, you know, above the fray kind of situation. But he is siding with one side over the other. Um, he has to. And so he had been supporting the Hamiltonian position for a long period of time. 
And in looking at that, when he sits there and says, well, we have to, we have to abide by the Constitution. Well, if you have to do that, then don't sign Hamilton's legislation. That's clearly unconstitutional. That is supporting one faction over another. If your overarching goal is to preserve the Constitution, which he talks about in the farewell address, then you should never have signed into law a Bank of the United States or a lot of other of Hamilton's constitutional machinations. None of that stuff should have been done. You shouldn't have issued a neutrality proclamation. You shouldn't have gone into western Pennsylvania, and uh, which was illegal, according to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and the Governor of the State of Pennsylvania. Those things shouldn't have been done. But yet you did it, and so you contributed, Washington, to the factionalism of the day. Now, it's not to say that George Washington is not a great man. In fact, he is the indispensable man. He is the perhaps the greatest American in American history, without question. But he made mistakes as president, and he contributes to his own... Uh, to the, the factualism, the thing that he warns against. And this is, again, Hamilton having his, his fingerprints all over this thing and saying, well, I mean, this is, well, these Democratic Republicans are factionalists. It's just them. I'm just doing things in the name of the people of the United States. And so that one people thing comes out too. So let's, let's get into this thing. Uh, Washington says, um, the unity of government which constitutes you one people is now, I'm saying is also now dear to you. It is justly so, for it is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. But it is, as, it, but as it is easy to foresee that from different causes and from different quarters, much pains will be taken, many artifices employed to weaken in your minds the conviction of this truth, as this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most consistently and actively directed. It is of infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness. So he's saying we're one people. Now, uh, Marshall will pick up on this, of course, in McCulloch v. Maryland, uh, when he talks about the ratification of the Constitution, this one people idea. So here it is, uh, George Washington saying that we're all one people. Now, anyone with half a brain recognized that wasn't true. And he goes to great pains to talk about the sectional differences in the United States, North, South, and West. He talks about it because he understands it's really not true. He's trying to fabricate something here that's not simply true. And he does say, well, I mean, you all have, um, he says this, uh, for this you have every in inducement of sympathy and interest. Citizens, by birth or choice, of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in, our, in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any application derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have in a common cause fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint consuls and joint efforts of common danger, sufferings, and successes. So, he's appealing to this unity that was there under the American War for Independence, which... Washington himself recognized really wasn't a whole lot of unity. He couldn't get New Englanders to do anything unless he paid them. And he said as much. <clears throat> we know that Southerners had a different view oftentimes of this war than Northerners. Even though you had nationalists, you also had people that were willing to only fight for their state. I mean, you had this even in the American War for Independence. And when he says that you have slight shades of difference, this is not necessarily true. Um, if you take my U.S. history course uh, through McClanahan Academy, which is the next course, you're going to see that this is simply not true. You're going to see that uh, these slight shades of differences were um, 
more than just that. I mean, we've essentially had four distinct British cultures in North America when the United States was founded. And these cultures had wide differences in views of government and society. Um, of course, they were all Christians for the most part. They were all Christians, which is one thing. Um, I think if you applied this to today, this would simply not be true at all. That unity doesn't even... If you said in, in 1796 there was a certain amount of unity, that unity is completely gone in 2019. Um, we are more divided, not on political principles, though I think that's there, but on cultural differences than we ever have been before. I mean, we do have a culture war in America. Uh, you have half the population that's not religious at all. You have half the population that is, and that half the population... Uh, there are sharp differences even in their re in religion. Um, so that is a main division, uh, I think, in, in America. You have uh, differences over cultural norms. Uh, you have differences over uh, what the general government should be doing and not doing. Um, I mean, th there are vast differences today, uh, and that's the spirit of liberty. What does liberty even mean? I have a whole podcast on that, an episode. What is, what is this meaning of liberty? So we have such vast differences that Washington's appeal for unity may not be as powerful today as it would be then. I mean, it's easy to say. Well, we're and, and the left tries this more than anyone else nowadays because they control the Congress. We're all one people. But they use things like diversity as our strength. Washington would say here, no, 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 that's not a strength. That's a problem. Uh, we got to sit here. We got to have one common culture. If we're going to do this thing, it has to be common. You have to be calling yourself an American, not a hyphenated American or some type of sectional American or whatever it is. You have to call yourself an American. It just didn't work long term. And he said as much that this is going to be an experiment. He said this will be an experiment, and I'll get to that in a minute. He recognized that what he's saying here, he's blowing hot air. He's trying to unify people, and he's using his bully pulpit, so to speak, he is George Washington. He is the president, but he is not. He's George Washington. He's trying to say, look, this is what I think. As a disinterested statesman looking back, this is what I think, and this is what we should all be doing, recognizing full well that it may not work. Now, um, he says, while then every part of our country thus feels an immediate and particular interest in union, all these parts combined cannot fail to find in the united mass in, uh, in, of means and efforts great strength. Greater resources, proportionally greater security from external danger, a less frequent interruption of their peace by foreign nations. Um, and he says they must they must have must derive from the union an exemption from these broils and wars between themselves, which so frequently afflict neighboring countries not tied together by the same governments, which their own rival ships alone would be sufficient to produce, but which opposite foreign alliances, attachments, and intrigues would stimulate into a better. And that, I like this last line. Hence. Likewise, they will avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments which, under any form of government, are inauspicious to liberty and which are, are, which are to be regarded as particularly hostile to republican liberty. In this sense, it is that your union ought to be considered as a main prop of your liberty and that the love of the one to en ought to endear to you the preservation of the other. So, that's a meaty sentence. He's saying, look, the union is actually going to help us avoid this major military that we... that." naturally flows uh, to the destruction of liberty. He is against a strong or a large standing army. He doesn't think it needs to exist. And look at what's happening in America right now. The Republicans can't get out of their way to try to spend uh, billions and billions of dollars on a strong standing military. 
Whereas the Democrats can't get out of their way to support billions and billions of dollars on a huge domestic, uh, bloated domestic government, right? So um, we have two sides pushing on this uh, and wasting money, which Washington gets into, but the military is problematic. So Republicans will read this and say, yeah, these because he talks about frugality. Yeah, these Democrats shouldn't be so wasteful. But he's also saying, hey, we don't need that big military that y'all keep promoting. It's wasteful. It's not only wasteful, it's dangerous to liberty because it produces all the wars and everything else that you're going to get out of it. You don't want this big standing military. This is George Washington saying this. So if we're going to listen to George Washington, if we're going to say, well, I mean, we all need to be one people and one nation. And the Republicans would push this. This is, you know, this is make America great again. This is American nationalism. It's top-down Americanism. Um, but there's the part of that that says don't have the strong standing army the huge army that's going to be destructive to liberty. He said, These considerations speak a persuasive language to every reflecting and virtuous mind and exhibit the continuance of the Union as a primary object of, of patriotic desire. Is there a doubt whether a common government can embrace so large a sphere? This is a big question. Let experience solve it. To listen to mere speculation in such a case were criminal. We are authorized to hope that a proper organization of the whole with the auxiliary agency of governments for the respective subdivisions will afford a happy issue of, to the experiment. He says an experiment. This is the big question in 1796. Can we have this large territory governed by a single government? And I think experience hath shown, if we want to use the language of the time, that it cannot. That what you create is divisiveness, factions, and all kinds of problems. Now... He says, though, the only way to do it is to follow the Constitution. If we follow the Constitution, the proper subdivisions of the auxiliary powers. Now, he's, he's saying things here, of course, he's not recognizing real federalism, the sovereignty of the states. But the only way to do it is to make sure that the states still have a primary role in this government. The only way to do it is to ensure that we don't have an oppressive central authority. Um, now, he actually goes on to say, the basis of our political systems is the right of the people to make and to alter their constitutions of government. But the constitution which at any time exists till changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people is sacredly obligatory upon all, or obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. So this is often held up as saying, well, Washington didn't think that here's the whole people thing. We can only change it by the whole people. We know that's not true. You can change it by three quarters of the states. We know the Constitution was only formed by nine states. So he's blowing hot air there. It doesn't have to be changed by the whole people. It just has to be changed by a part of the people. And even that... Can one state say we're no longer bound to this compact? Well, certainly. Um, he says, Toward the preservation of your government and the permanency of your present happy state, it is requisite not only that you steadily dis discontinence irregular oppositions to its acknowledged authority, but also that you re resist with care the spirit of innovation upon its principles. The spirit of innovation upon its principles however uh, specious the pretext. One method of assault may be to effect in the forms of the Constitution alterations which will impair the energy of the system and thus to undermine what cannot be directly overthrown. 
and all the changes to which you may be invited, remember that time and habit are at least as necessary to fix the true character of governments as of other human institutions. Now, um, he's saying, so don't have innovations. This was, uh, this was one of the things that, I mean, Washington is being hypocritical because the innovations, the innovations are what Washington was doing, right? Hamilton's innovations were wrecking the entire problem or wrecking the entire system already. The Constitution was forever changed when we had the first Judiciary Act, which is not Hamilton. But then we get the first report on the public credit. We get the first report on manufacturers. We get all these things that are purely, purely sectional. And we're, I mean, clearly such that we're destroying the real nature of the general government. This is why Madison pointed it out. Hey, look, that Bank of the United States, it's unconstitutional. We know it is. Everyone knew it was. Hamilton, oh, it's necessary and proper for me to do my job. So who's creating the factions? Because you are having innovations. Innovations. Um, he gets into the spirit of party. Um, he says, without looking forward to the extremity of, of this kind, the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interest and duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. No spirit of party. And he says, why? he tells you why we shouldn't have parties. And this is, this is great advice. I mean, we've got, and he, he's right on, and I'm going to, I mean, I'll quote it right from him. Okay, so he says, look, it is important likewise that the habits of thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with this administration. Um, I'm sorry, let me back up. He says, party serves always to distract the public consuls and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against the other, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of any of party passions. Thus, the policy and will of one country is subjected to the policy and will of another. He's saying party invites these things. Look what's going on with this stupid Mueller report. One party keeps saying, it's Russian interference. We know that, uh, and, and of course, why was that invited in? You have to go back to 2016 when Obama was still in office and you had the Obama Justice Department and Hillary Clinton, Clinton getting the Steele dossier, all that stuff. It was all done because of spirit of party. You're inviting foreign influence in the election. It was the Democrats that did that. The, the, the Obama Justice Department was inviting this corruption, this factionalism. They were doing it. And then you look at what's happening. You look at, for example, take North Korea. Donald Trump goes to North Korea. Sean Hannity says it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. If Barack Obama goes to North Korea to negotiate, that is treason. I mean, this is what we get because of party, because of faction. Uh, if Barack Obama was doing some of these things that Trump is doing, the Democrats would say this is the greatest stuff ever. If, if Donald Trump's doing it, Donald Trump's a Nazi. And flip it around. If Obama was doing this stuff, the Republicans would say this stuff is treason. And uh, if Donald Trump's doing it, it's the greatest stuff ever. You see, this is party. It, it, it's the, it's, uh, uh, Washington is right about this um, when he talks about party. Now, he also says, It is important, likewise, that the habits of thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with this administration to confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding the exercise of the powers of one department to encroach upon the other. The spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one and thus to create whatever the form of government, a real despotism. Yeah, gee, uh, hallelujah. Uh, uh. I mean, he's, he's exactly right about this. 
you have to have separation of powers, but you also have separation of powers between the center and the states. But the spirit of encroachment, we, this is where nine presidents who screwed up America comes in. Washington was already doing this stuff. He was already encroaching on the powers of Congress uh, with his neutrality proclamation and with, of course, the invasion of Western Pennsylvania for the Whiskey Rebellion. He was already encroaching on the powers of the states. So Washington was doing the very thing he was warning against, and this is, this is why it's hypocritical in a way. But, of course, it's something that we should be watching. The Constitution needs to be upheld in the separation of powers, and when that doesn't happen, you have despotism and tyranny, and we know this is what we have now. There's no doubt about it. He says, if in the opinion of the people the distribution or modification of the constitutional powers be in any particular wrong, let it be corrected by an amendment in the way which the Constitution designates. But let there be no change by usurpation, for through this, in one instance, may be the instrument of good. It is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. I've got a pen and I'm going to use it. I've got a phone and I'm going to use it. Trump, I mean, look, they're, Obama, Trump, they're all just a symptom of the disease, and that disease is executive government. It doesn't matter. I mean, this is where, you know, you could, uh, people were very upset with my nine presidents because I bashed some sacred cows. Why? Because they all abused power. I made a point when I was doing the publicity for my founding, uh, founding father's guide to the Constitution that virtually every president the last hundred years could be impeached, and I wasn't lying about that. They've all abused power. They're a symptom of the disease, which is executive government. The Congress has continually punted its responsibility. We now say that uh, Congress will just pass legislation, let the Supreme Court decide. They should be debating whether these laws are constitutional when they actually pass them, not just pass a law and let the court decide. That's punting their responsibility. That's a usurpation of power by the Supreme Court. And then, of course, the executive going in and doing whatever they want to do. Congress has, been, has, has emasculated itself. And the states sit back and get the cash and don't do anything about stopping this out-of-control central authority. All of it's there. The Congress has a lot of power and they can use it. The states have tremendous amounts of power and they can use it. We don't need executive government or judicial government. We need legislative government and then, of course, federalism, which is the real solution to this problem. Um... He talks about how you can't have a good, virtuous republic without religion. I mean, this is an important distinction. And, uh, and now, as I just mentioned, we don't have that anymore. So Washington would be some, some uh, old pro-religious uh, you know, white supremacist here. This is how he would be portrayed. Uh, but you got to have religion, he said. Now, people, well, you don't have to have religion. Have rich. Well, you run into all kinds of problems with that. I think it's clear. Uh, you know, Religion is the basis of morality in Western civilization. So it, it needs to be there. Um, he says, as a very important source of strength and security, cherish public credit. One method of preserving it is to, is to use it as sparingly as possible, avoiding occasions of expense by cultivating peace, but remembering also that timely disbursements to prepare for danger frequently prevent much greater disbursements to repel it. <clears throat> avoiding likewise the accumulation of debt, not only by shunning occasions of expense, but by vigorous exertion in time of peace to discharge the debts, which unavoidable wars may have occasioned not ungenerously throwing upon posterity the burden which we ourselves ought to bear. So he's saying, look, don't use credit. We've, we are so far in debt now, there's no way to get out of it, really. Uh, Washington's saying, we, we, in times of, of peace, we should be paying off our debt. And he says, and we have to pay taxes to do that. Uh, but we shouldn't be racking up huge amounts of debt. 
Now, he would, the Republicans look at this and say, yeah, we have to prepare for, for war in times of peace. Well, I think we're doing a pretty good job considering that our military expenditures dwarf any other country and that our military, uh, not in terms of manpower, but uh, because we're not China, but in terms of expense, is the largest in the world. I think we're okay. The fact we've got military bases in 100-plus countries, over 600, uh, 600 of them. I mean, we've got, we got military bases all over the place, right? I think we're doing a good job of this. Maybe it's time to reconsider some of these things. Um, he says, observe good faith and justice towards all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. Not just the ones we like, but the ones we don't like. Not just the governments we, we are, are familiar with, but the ones we're not. Religion and morality enjoin this conduct, and it can be that good policy does not equally enjoin it. In the execution of such a plan, nothing is more essential than, the per than that permanent and venerate antipathies against particular nations and passionate attachments for others should be excluded, and that in place of them, just and amicable feelings towards all should be cultivated. The nation which indulges towards another a habitual hatred or habitual fondness is in some degree a slave. Think about our foreign policy. I mean, we, we have habitual, we have all these alliances now. And that creates enemies. I mean, uh, we'll just use the, the Republican side. It's Israel. We have to always support Israel against everybody. Well, Washington would say that makes us a slave. On the Democrat side, we have to support, uh, uh, I don't know, take your pick of, they, uh, for, a, for a long time, uh, you know, they were uh, suspicious of American foreign policy in the Cold War, which... Uh, so we, we need to be good buddies with, say, the Soviet Union, whatever it is. I mean, um, but I think this habitual attachment to any foreign power is dangerous. Or maybe it's China. We, you know, we should be good, good buddies with China. But we should, we should secure friendship and goodwill with all nations, Iran and Israel. This would be a good foreign policy. Russia, we should have good relationship with Russia. Why not? We have common interests in a lot of ways. Why, why don't we do that? Why don't we have a good relationship with these countries? And w when you do this, you create peace, which Washington says is the most important thing to do. As avenues to foreign influence in innumerable ways, such attachments are particularly alarming to the truly enlightened and independent patriot. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. So far as we have already formed engagements, let them be fulfilled with perfect good faith. Here, let us stop. Europe has a set of primary interests which to us have none or a very remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. So don't get involved with Europe. That's And uh, just be good trading partners with these people. Don't worry about their politics. Just trade with them. That makes it all, this is all great, peaceful. This is, this is the peaceful trading partners, what Ron Paul was talking about quite a lot. Our detached and distant situation invites and enables us to pursue a different course. If we remain one people under an efficient government, the period is not far off when we may defy material injury from external annoyance. When we may be, take such an attitude as will cause the neutrality we, which we may at any time resolve upon to be scrupulously respected. It is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliances which any portion, with any portion of the foreign world, so far as I mean which we are now at liberty to do it. For let me not be understood as capable of patronizing infidelity to, infidelity to existing arrangements, engagements. Taking care always to keep ourselves by suitable establishments on a respectable defense, defensive posture, we may safely trust to, to temporary alliances for extraordinary emergencies. So, he's saying, look, we can have foreign alliances only in extraordinary measures, 
when we're defending ourselves, but we should be interested in peaceful trade, and that's it. I, the farewell address has got a lot of good advice. There's some hypocrisy in it. There's some hot air in it because of the thing, uh, some situations of the 1790s. But Washington was certainly aware that uh, spending too much money was going to create problems, that permanent alliances and foreign entanglements, as, as uh, Jefferson later called them, were going to create problems. Um, and so this is where we have a... Uh, a marked contrast to our current government, that uh, parties were going to create problems, and we have that now. So Washington's address should be read and digested. I, dis I have a dispute with him over this one people thing, but I know why he's doing it. Uh, but he is saying, look, this is custom and precedent. Time is going to see if this thing works, and we know it didn't work long term, unless we have real federalism. If we have top-down government, you're never going to have it work. You've got to think locally and act locally. Uh, with the idea, I mean, I agree that the union would be beneficial if the union only did certain things, which was peaceful trade with the world, uh, facilitate free trade between the states, um, and maintain our defensive posture against foreign invasion, which it doesn't do that either currently. So it's not doing what it's supposed to do, and therefore, as Calhoun would say, the union next to our liberty most dear. I mean, what do we have left? So uh, this is interesting when you look at Washington's address and see, uh, you know, how this how this thing, how Washington was thinking about this. And, of course, some of the advice he gave. It's good advice. We just have to follow it. Uh, all right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time.